When I first moved to Berlin um, 18 years ago, my heart, I was 27 years old, I, I, my vision was I was going to come and reach the youth. And I, I started a Bible study, kind of went out in streets, kind of sharing with all the kids. No one ever showed up for a youth Bible study. And I was so bummed out. So we opened up a Bible study, and it was literally senior citizens showing up. And I'm like, I'm 27. You know, all these people with bald and gray and, hey, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm one of them now, brother. But, uh, but um, you know, what's been amazing is to watch God raise up other people to support and, and, and do um, what I could never do. And Pastor Sean has been with us now for about six, seven years. And, and just to see what God's doing in our youth and the youth of this community is incredible. And I asked them to come and share with you guys to give Pastor Sean a warm Calvary Chapel welcome there, man. All right. Well, I'm glad they gave you guys a lot of meat. You're going to need your protein. That's a good thing. Well, uh, before we get started, I, I love the whole nautical thing, and uh, I love the theme, and so I thought to be in theme, did any of you guys see Pirates of the Caribbean, the third one? I don't know what it was, Pirates for More Money or whatever it was, but um, if you remember the, the, the pirate there, Captain Sparrow or whatever, he had, a, he had a shrunken heads hanging off of his, you know, supposedly he'd been through South America or so, and so, you know, I, I never, I don't want to miss an opportunity. Um, <laughs> This is my shrunken head. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but the, sh the, the head shrinkers, there's only one tribe that's really been documented that ever shrunk heads, and that's the Hebrew or the Javaro people of Ecuador in northern Peru. And now check this out. So last week, I'm in Peru, and we're actually going to a Javaro tribe. Um, now, they don't, they don't shrink heads anymore. Um, that was outlawed in Peru in, in 1940. Um, and so the, the chief there had assured us that it was his grandparents that were cannibals. It was his grandparents that shrunk heads. They don't do that anymore. And uh, we got the opportunity um, to go down amongst the Javaro people. Now, this was a work that was, has been uh, ongoing by pastor, a good friend, Pastor Jose Garate, down there in Peru. And he's been working for a couple years and he got to meet the Javaro people, actually, because the last time we were down there, we were worshiping God with a bunch of naked people, but that's a different story. And he got to meet the Javaros. And so since he got to meet the Javaros, they've been working for a couple years, and the chief's son wanted to get married. He wanted to marry his, his woman, which is unheard of. Uh, the Javaro people, they don't marry. Um, and they, in fact, they have many women, right? And the idea is you have four, five, or six women, and they actually, they have a name for a guy who only has two women, it sounded like wuss to me. I don't know what the real name was, but it pretty was wussy or wussy. It was just wuss, all right? So if you only got two women, you're a wuss. So the idea of having one man and one woman together for life is a very foreign concept for them. And so yet this young man had gotten saved and he wanted to marry his woman. They already had four kids, but he, he wants to get right with God. So we're excited. So we're going up the Mamong River to get up to this, this place. The water's low. We fought our way all the way there. And we've gotten there and the, and the couple shows up and they see us. And her face just, just goes stone cold. And they're like, no, we can't, we can't get married. And we're like, why not? And they said, well, we got to get married by the government first. And so... We're talking to them and we're sharing with them. We're like, no, marriage is of God. It's God's plan. The government just gives a piece of paper. And then the truth came out. They started talking about the pelicadas. You see, in this area, in this region, in the jungles, there's a, a legend, an urban legend kind of, if you will, um, or a jungle legend of the pelicadas. 
that the white people are, are face peelers. That's what pelicata means. They, 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 they come down to, to steal their fat and to steal their organs and to steal their children and to cut them up and to make them into medicine. And so this is a, a superstition that runs deep into the jungle. And, uh, and, and the unfortunate part about this is regardless of where it got its origins, there's plenty of really perverted um, first world people who travel there and sustain this kind of nonsense. There's enough people coming, there's enough, enough white guys coming out of Europe and North America to abuse the people down there to keep these stories going. And that's what ended up happening. This young woman to be a bride had been jumped by two white men. They had shined a flashlight in her face in the jungle, knocked her out, and when she awoke, she was over a mile downstream. And I'm sure they weren't giving her a polio vaccination. She had been abused. Well, we backed up. We said, man, we are, we're sorry. I mean, we've heard about the pelicatas. We don't really know about them, but obviously this would be a really heavy thing for you. And so, you know, we just came to love you and bless you in Jesus' name. We totally understand. And uh, Pastor Jose, he jumps in and he starts talking to him. He says, no, 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 these guys are not Pelicatas. These guys, are, they're men of God. They've, they've been supporting the ministry this whole time. And he's, he's kind of going to bat for us. And the, the Holy Spirit just kind of moves on this young couple. And they say, okay, all right, we'll get married. And so how cool is this? Last week, I get to perform the first wedding amongst the Javaro people that we know of. Definitely the first wedding amongst the Javaro of Centro Fuerte. So... And in fact, when I'm starting to do the wedding, the people are looking suspicious. They don't know about this. By the end, as we start to describe to them God's plan for marriage, they're smiling, they're laughing, they're applauding. And, when the, and, and then when we left, this young girl who had been probably raped by white men, she comes up with this huge grin and she says, gracias, pastor. And she gives me this huge hug. God is amazing, and God heals, and God does miracles, and he's doing them all the time. Now, that has absolutely nothing to do with my topic, but I just couldn't help sharing that because I'm stoked about doing, you know, they're cannibals. I get to do the wedding, shrunken heads. It's just awesome, okay? So, I don't know. People who... Uh... So the topic that I've been given, and, and, uh, and Gary, if you want to put up that first slide for me, that'd be great. My, my topic, my title is Going the Extra Mile, Radical Christianity. Let's see if we can get the... Hey, look, I'm frozen. Oh, there we go. And there it is. Going the Extra Mile, Radical Christianity. Pretty cool photo, isn't it? Uh, it's pretty provocative. Now, I've read the biography on this photographer, and, and his theology is jacked up, but he nailed it on this picture. Because you see, when Jesus was saying this to the people, when, in, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says, whoever forces you to go one mile with him, I want you to go two. He was speaking to something that was real in that time. You see, remember that Israel is under Roman occupation, and so the Rome are the oppressors, but they have a law that a Roman soldier... Could, could force a Jewish citizen to carry his military pack. Maybe it weighs 30, 40 pounds. He could force that person to carry his pack, that Jew to carry his pack for one mile, but that was the end of the law. He couldn't do any more. So when Jesus is speaking to this, he's saying, okay, when the Roman soldiers, when the people who are crucifying us, when the people who are beating us, when the people who are stealing from us, when they force you to carry their pack one mile by law, Okay, I want you to carry it too. And that extra mile you carry out of love. 
That's radical Christianity, isn't it? That's a radical message. We follow a radical Savior. In fact, I looked up, since the, since the, the topic was radical Christianity, um, I, looked, I got my Strong's Concordance out and I looked up radical. How many times radical shows up in our Bible? And if you include the Old Testament and the New Testament, all the times in Hebrew and Greek that the word radical shows up, it shows up exactly zero times. <laughs> radical Christianity is not a concept of our scripture. And I think the reason is pretty obvious. Because Christianity, by its very nature, is radical. It runs against the flow of this world. It is as countercultural as you can get. In fact, this is what the scriptures say in Romans 8. It says this, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as is written, For your sake, Lord, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. You see, when your normal belief causes you to be persecuted by your peers and by the people and by the, the government and by the church, when your normal belief causes you to be sentenced to death and set on fire and fed to lions, what do you call radical belief? Christianity is by its very nature radical. In fact, the term radical Christian that's really redundant, isn't it? It's kind of like bare naked, right? He's bare naked. Not only that, he doesn't have any clothes on, right? It's like Rio Grande River. You got a gringo got caught up in that one, didn't you? As you know, with us white people, you just got to throw a Spanish word in there. We think it's great, right? I'm just waiting for somebody to like open up a new like housing development, like Vista View, you know? I've got a house at Vista View, really. Yeah, there's Vista everywhere. It's amazing. You can overlook it. They export the Vista, you know? So there's this idea. It's redundant. So we could have like Vista View Radical Christian Church of the Rio Grande River. It's redundant. Christianity is radical. So why do we even have a concept that there is such a thing as non-radical Christianity? Why do we even entertain such a ridiculous thought? I think it's because the overwhelming majority of the church doesn't believe. We don't believe. We don't believe our sin is that bad. We don't believe that God is that good. We don't believe the Bible is that true. We don't believe that hell is that horrible. And we don't believe that heaven is that desirable. We simply do not believe. And so we have this idea of a non-radical Christianity, some kind of compromised Christianity. There's a company, I think it's called Kumo, they make automobile tires, and they've come out with an automobile tire, and I'm not joking, I didn't make this up, it's lavender scented so they can get the, the female market. They're making lavender scented tires. That was brilliant, wasn't it? That's like coming up with, like, like who is the Einstein that came up with scented markers for children? That was a great one, wasn't it? Your kid comes home, looks like he snorted a comic book, he's got red, blue, green up on his nose. What happened to my kid? It's like, well, they got scented markers. It's like, wouldn't you like to thank that developer personally? Right? It's about the same thing. It's about as brilliant as, and, and who came up with scented toilet paper? Right? That's some under-engineering, isn't it? 
That's kind of like peeing on a forest fire. That's not going to do a whole lot. Smells like daisies. Not for long. It's not going to... Not really. These are stupid ideas, aren't they? But you know what? There's something that's more stupid, and that is a Christian-scented pagan. It's a Christian-scented heathen. It is a Christian-scented selfish person. That's the most foolish of all ideas. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? It's the person. They own a Bible. They own a Bible. They've listened to Christian music. They come to church, but their faith is personal. It's a private thing. Not the kind of thing that would actually cause itself to be like expressed in their lifestyle. It definitely doesn't flavor their entertainment choices. Their faith would have nothing to do with their politics, and it wouldn't resolve their speech problems. You see, they've got one foot in the world, and they've got one foot in the church. They're straddling. And I don't know about you, but growing up, there was one thing that I learned through fences and walls and bicycles, is that straddling's not a good idea for men. Right? I got a personal motto, when in doubt, don't straddle. I think I'm going to get a t-shirt made up or something, right? Why? Why is straddling wrong? Why is putting one foot in the world and one foot in the church wrong? Because there are certain things that will never come together. They were never meant to come together. They do not mix. There's an old saying, don't mix your milk with your paint. It doesn't hurt your paint, but it really mucks up your milk. And that's the truth, isn't it? You see, your religious life won't hurt your sin life at all. But your sin will definitely disrupt your relationship with the Most High God. This idea of non-radical Christianity is blasphemy. It's heresy. It leads to a compromised lifestyle. Remember, the Bible says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. In fact, I think actually this idea of non-radical Christianity moves us beyond compromise. It can even move us to the place of heresy, of apostasy, until we've migrated so far from the truth that we are actually now dealing with non-believing believers. And that's an oxymoron, isn't it? It's like a clean boy or an adult male or a thinking liberal. They don't exist. You can't have a non-believing believer. Christianity is radical because we serve a radical God who is radically passionate about sin and about eternity and about salvation. And there is no neutral ground. There is no neutral ground for there is an enemy who is at war and is seeking the destruction of everyone on this planet. Jesus doesn't bleed for the fun of it. So, when you meet someone and they water down their gospel and they bite their tongue and they sit on their hands and this idea of like keeping peace with other people, don't understand what biblical peace is. Romans 5 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace comes one way only, and that is we have to kill the old man. This is not neutral. This is not nice. It is not polite. And it's definitely not non-radical. So consequently, I think the most radical thing that we can do as believers is pray, read our Bibles, serve, 
and evangelize. But actually, let me correct that. We could do all those things out of a sense of compulsion. We could do all those things out of some sense of like religious obligation, thinking that, well, this is the thing that we do in the boundaries of our Christianity. But remember, Jesus is calling us to go the extra mile. He's calling us to go to a place uh, um, out of love. So this is something that only the Holy Spirit's going to be able to do inside of us. We do not have the potential to be radical within our flesh. We require God in us to do this. And then when we have God flowing through us, then we can do all of these things radically the way I think that the Bible has always meant for them to happen. So let's take prayer, for instance. The scripture says in James that the fervent, effective prayer of the righteous man avails much. Now, that sounds like real prayer, doesn't it? Prayer that actually changes things, that moves things. But it says the fervent, effective prayer. That in the Greek is the word energeo. It's from where we get the word energy. It really literally means empowered prayer. And there's two aspects of empowered prayer. It's fervent and it's effective. So let's break this down. How do our prayers become fervent? The Bible says that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who must give us the will to pray. And so how does God make crusty, calloused, apathetic men want to pray? Pain. Praise God for pain that breaks through the crust of our selfishness. You know, the truth is, we don't really pray for stuff very much, do we? Not until the Lord smacks us. Then it's, oh Lord, please. Pain is a wonderful thing. It's when the Holy Spirit breaks down our selfishness so that we actually will to pray. Now it also says the fervent, effective prayer. How is it that the Spirit of God makes our prayer effective? Well, the Bible tells us, Scripture says, that we do not know how to pray as we ought to, so that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Pretty much the Bible says we can't pray very well, really. You ever had somebody come up to you and say, well, brother, nothing we can do now but pray? Like, like praying is punting, right? It's like it's fourth and ten and we got to punt. And so, well, there's nothing we can do now but pray. And I'm thinking God's up there saying, well, actually, guys, no, you can't. No, your prayers uh, stink. Your prayers are pathetic and honestly, a lot of times, blasphemous. Because most of the time, we come up in our prayer like this. Well, God, let me explain the problem to you. This is what we got to do, God. Like we know anything. Like somehow we've got the capacity to give God counsel. Like somehow he needs us to instruct him. He's the, he's the omnipotent God. He can do anything. And I don't know if you've been in the men's restroom, we can't even hit the urinals. I mean, seriously, what are you, some of you guys doing? It's a four-foot urinal. How do you miss it? Quit talking to the guy next to you. I mean, it's... We can't, and so we're going to tell God what to do? 
we're going to explain something to God. He's omniscient, which means all-knowing. And we don't even know. You don't know where half your socks are, right? And evidently, I don't know how to dress myself. At least that's pretty much a regular thing in my house. I'm ready to go. And Dorothy comes up and she's like, you're not going to wear that shirt with those pants, are you? <laughs> no, of course not. I just thought how comically ironic it was that this perfectly good shirt contrasts with these perfectly good pants, you know? Well, don't you think you had to march yourself in there and change? I'm really feeling pretty comical this morning. Maybe you ought to march me in there and explain to me how this works, you know, because I don't, I don't get it. I'm thinking I pulled them both off hangers. They should go together. It's just I don't quite understand this. And so we're in a situation where we really, you know, I think that's why the Lord gives us wives, don't you? Because they love us, but they, they've, they've got us pegged, don't they? So it's funny because, you know, the thing is, is we're always, well, you know, she doesn't think I do anything right. And it's like, well, that's probably to help you with your prayer life, right? Shouldn't it be? Because isn't it ridiculous that our wives point out our flaws and then we turn around and counsel God? God says, you better be humbled. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to pray. And so instead of explaining to God what he should do or trying to manipulate God or trying to influence him into our way of thinking, we should tell God what's going on in our life and we should fall down before him and ask that his will be done. That we would ask his will to be done. You know, I've been rebuked for doing that. I had a guy come up to me one time. We were praying for a gentleman, and he was sick. He was dying. And I'm like, God, we just, I pray for my brother to be healed. You can do it. We know you can do it. But not our will be done. Lord, your will be done because you're brilliant, and you know all the things we don't know. And this guy comes up, and he says, what are you doing praying that? You don't pray God's will be done. And I'm looking at him, and I'm like, say what? He says, don't you understand? You've been given authority in Jesus' name. You claim it. You take it. And I'm looking at him and I'm going, my Savior prayed this prayer. And if my Messiah and my God can pray this prayer, then I can pray this prayer, Mr. No More Than Jesus. We get rebuked because we want to do things in the spiritual realm like we do them in the natural realm. Let's face it, we kind of muscle up our way and we get our way. We intimidate. Well, I just don't think trying to intimidate God's going to be very successful. We're supposed to humble ourselves before the Almighty God. Then we've got an empowered prayer. When the Holy Spirit breaks us so that we're fervent, and when the Holy Spirit humbles us so that we know who we are, that He is the all-glorious God, and we are just like compost in front of Him, and He can, He knows best, then I think we're getting into an empowered prayer. Then it says that the fervent, effective prayer of the righteous man avails much. Well, that presents a problem, doesn't it? Because my Bible says that there is no one righteous. No, not one. And that would be a problem, except that the Scripture also says that the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
You see, the truth is, is we have absolutely no self-righteousness. There is none, not one of us self-righteous. For us to approach the throne of God in self-righteousness is, and to trust in our own righteousness is like trusting in a brick life vest. It's not going to work. We have no righteousness that will buoy us up. Our righteousness is actually as filthy rags. It drags us down. But in Christ and through his blood and through his spirit, we can be made righteous so that we can come boldly before the throne of grace and seek help in time of need. So the idea of what the scripture teaches us is that as believers, we should be praying in the power of God. Then it gets radical. Then things start to happen. So I don't know if somebody comes up to you and says, brother, can you pray for me? And you might be tempted to say, well, you know, really you should probably get brother Mike over there. He's better at praying. Well, if you think brother Mike over there is better at praying than you, then repent. Because every believer is a worshiper and every believer and especially every believing man is to be a prayer warrior. If you don't know how to pray, it's pretty simple. You get broken, you get humbled, you get saved and you get going and you pray. This is not optional. This is Christianity. We do not operate in the flesh. We operate under the power of the Holy Spirit. We are in constant contact with our Father because the things that He has called us to do are impossible apart from Him. And we're supposed to be living a pretty radical, miracle-filled, change-the-world type of Christianity. And we've got to blow out of our minds all of these lies that we have taken on, on non-radical Christianity and on pathetic prayers. We're to be broken, humbled, saved, and grabbing onto the feet of Jesus, asking for him to move. That's radical prayer. Now, how about radical Bible study? How do you study your Bibles radically? I don't know if you do this. I'll do this. I'll get ready to like sign some document where you got to sign. And somebody will point out, well, you know that you're signing that you've read and fully understand all of the words that are above the signature line. In which case, I'm like, oh, okay, no problem. So this is what I do. I, I'll take the paper, and I'll go like this. And I'll move my head back and forth like this, like I'm reading. And at some point, when I think I am probably should be about two-thirds of the way down the page, I'll kind of have a pained look, as if maybe I found something on this page that I have some objections with. But then I've resolved it in my mind that actually what they're asking isn't too terribly much, and so then I'll nod in agreement. And then I'll sign. Now, the truth is, I haven't read a single word on the page, right? And that's perfectly fine for signing away your money, your life, your home, but it doesn't work with your Bible. I have people come up all the time, and that's exactly the way they approach their Bible. I have had so many people tell me, oh, I've read the Bible. And I'm looking at them, I'm thinking, you know, the cover doesn't count. And they go, oh, I've read my Bible. Really, what's your favorite book? Oh, I'm, I don't remember all the names exactly. What, really, what's your favorite part? What's the part that inspired you the most? That's what I thought. We're Christians. Do you break your Bible open? We've got to read our Bibles. Holding a Bible is not radical. Reading the table of contents is not radical. Following what the pastor's saying is not radical. Or maybe you do read it. Now, you may get in the same position I get in. I'm reading through my Bible. I read through the chapter. I get to the bottom of the chapter, and I realize I have no idea what I just read. Nothing. My brains were like in the Bahamas or something. 
And if I'm specifically, you know, particularly distracted, I can read through the same chapter two, three times, still have no clue what I read. Then I have to read it out loud. And then if that doesn't work, I got to break out a pencil and paper and I got to start diagramming it and cutting it down because it's not optional whether or not we understand this book. We've got to understand this book. We've got to do whatever it takes to understand it. You see, first of all, we've got to break it open and we've got to read it so that we might know what it says. But then we've got to dig into it and we've got to fight for it until we know what it means. And even if we do that, we're still not radical yet. Those are just the first two steps. I teach, I teach the youth the mystical art of Oya, right? And they start to freak out. And actually, it's just inductive Bible study, observation, interpretation, and application. I say, you read it so you know what it says. You study it until you know what it means. But it doesn't get radical until you make it happen in your life and you apply it and you start living it out. That's when Bible study gets radical, right? It's not how many times you go through the Bible, the old saying goes. It's how many times the Bible has gone through you. Until it kind of starts changing our life, until it starts changing the way we work, it's not radical. Um, I don't know if, how many of you guys know um, uh, Morgan Jackson or the people up at Hosanna. Faith comes by hearing. But there's a great ministry in Albuquerque where they record the Bible in all the different languages. And I remember Morgan Jackson relaying the story of the Concomba people when they first got the Bible in their mother tongue. Now, the Concomba people in Africa are, are a people of oral tradition, which means that their history and their science and their knowledge base gets, ta- gets carried on from generation to generation through storytelling. So for them to hear is to understand, for them to understand is to do. So imagine what happens when they get the Bible and it was in a cassette form and they could press play and they could hear the words of God in their own tongue. The leaders of the community would come together to listen to the Bible and then they would come to a point of scripture that conflicted with their culture and they would stop the tape. And they're like, well, what do we do now? You know, I don't know what it would be. Maybe it's something like, you know, you're not supposed to sleep with another man's wife. The words of God say we're not supposed to sleep with another man's wife, but we all sleep with all kind of people. What do we do now? It's like, well, if the Lord says don't sleep with another man's wife, we can't sleep with another man's wife. Let's make it a law. All in favor? Aye. Okay, it's now. No longer, you don't sleep with anyone's wife. Okay. Plus pray. Keep going. That's radical, isn't it? Can you imagine if we read our Bibles like that? That we open up our Bibles and when we see a place in the Bible where our life and the Bible do not line up, where we wrestle with our flesh until it comes into agreement with the scriptures, that would be radical Bible study, don't you think? What about radical service? You see, actually, oh wait, well, let me get back to this idea. I don't want to miss this. Every believer is to be a worshiper and a prayer warrior. Every believer is to be a radical Bible study person. All right, we're supposed to be a disciple. And so when your children come up and ask you a question out of the Bible and you don't know the answer, don't go to the pastor, find the answer. Don't, don't send your kid to the pastor, find the answer. If you've got to go to the pastor, fine, and then come back and give the answer. But we're the men of the church. And when we're asked a question and we don't know the answer, it's not for us to like throw the ball to someone else. It's for us to wrestle with it, know it, and then give it. We're all to be disciples. Now, we're also supposed to be radical in our service. And service is really, if you think about service, service is is whenever we use our time or our talents um, or our treasure for, for God's kingdom in, instead of f- on ourselves. When we use our time, our work time, or our play time, when we use 
our talents, maybe you've got managerial skills or mus musical skills or, um, or, or mechanical skills, whatever the skill base you have, when you use it for God, whenever you use your, your, your resources, whether that's your, your home or your car or your four-wheeler or anything you have, whenever we use the things that have been given to us by God, when we use them for his kingdom instead of for ourself, that's service, that's ministry. So when does it get radical? I don't think it's when we have a prescribed limit. Like, I don't think it's like, well, you give 10% of your time or when you give $1,000 above your tithe or anything like that. I don't think it's a prescribed, some kind of like made up limit. Really, Jesus addressed this, didn't he? When he was, he was in the, the court of women and, and all of the people were bringing their offerings um, for the temple and they were giving their tithe. And, and uh, of course, then they didn't have paper money. It was all coins. So you'd hear the money going in. And so it got to be quite a spectacle, and people would be giving their money. Rich people would be pouring great, vast sums in here. And, and it seemed to be a spectator sport because Jesus is there with the disciples, and there's a lot of people there. And then remember, the widow comes up, and it says that she puts in two lepton. Two lepton coins were less than a cent. And Jesus stops everyone. And he says, did you see that? And I'm like, what? He says, this poor widow has put in more than everyone else combined. And they must have been thinking, no, Jesus, no, Lord. She didn't even put in a penny. Did you see that guy? He put in $5,000. He's like, he put in out of a surplus. But she put in all that she had to live on. I think God has prescribed how we're supposed to serve. Completely. Until it hurts. So what does that mean? We're supposed to sell all that we have to, to give it to the poor? Well, that's not without biblical precedent, is it? Jesus told the rich young ruler to sell all he has. But that was because the rich young ruler's stuff owned him. He didn't own his stuff. I think really it comes more to this point of surrender where we just say, Lord, my life, my house, my family, my future, my job, my retirement, my dreams, my goals, my, everything. Everything is yours. Everything is yours. My wallet is yours. Everything is yours. I think that's that type of surrender. Now, for some of you, that might be easy because you've got the gift of giving. And so when the Lord moves on your house, you just, you just give. Others of you may be like me. And when something hits your hands, it's like, it's mine. It's my precious, you know, right? We want it. We need it. I, I, and so I was in this place where I was always holding on to everything. And, and, and the Lord broke through in my mindset doing mission work in Mexico. And there was, a, there was a pastor, Carlos, down there who was building an orphanage. He had nothing. His house was just a, a center block room. And there was a, a bucket for a sink and a bucket for a toilet. I'd never really experienced that kind of poverty before. But what really shook me is that there was a picture in his house, and it was a picture, an Olin Mills portrait of this white bread family, because you see, his wife was from the States. She left all of the comforts and all of the wealth of the United States to follow this man into abject poverty to, to minister there in Mexico. And that struck me because I realized, you know, yeah, he's the kind of man you want to follow. So I grabbed him. I'm like, Carlos, how'd you get here? And he says, Sean... He says, remember that day? Sean, remember the day when you gave everything to God? Remember that day when we gave him our socks, we gave him everything? And he's including me in this, right? Sean, remember these things? And I'm thinking, no, I don't. But I want to. I want to. I want to be in that place 
where nothing owns my heart but Jesus. I want to be in that place where there is nothing to tangle me up. And man, I ran out and I found Dorothy. And I'm like, Dorothy, we got to give God our socks. And she's like kind of confused. And, but we went back and we prayed. Because I know when he said he gave his socks, he meant it. I'm sure he gave his socks away. There was nothing that was taboo. And it was in that point, God had been calling us into ministry for like 12 years, but we were too, we were too afraid. And finally, it's like, let's get, it, it doesn't matter. He can take us. He can take all we have. We've got to serve him. That's radical service. That's the kind of service that every one of us is supposed to be doing, isn't it? It's the kind of service where it doesn't matter. You, you have nothing. You have nothing. Everything was given to you. You earned nothing. You earned hell. Jesus gave you heaven. And anything else that he's let you have is a gift, and he's waiting to see what you're going to do with it. He's waiting to see what will we do with that which he's given us. It's not ours. Never has been ours. Never will be ours. But we will give an account for it before the maker, for our, before our savior. And lastly, evangelism. What does radical evangelism look like? Um, I run into people all the time. I can tell you what it doesn't look like. I have people tell me all the time, you know what? I really don't feel led by God to share my faith with words. I just, I like to let my life preach the gospel. And I'm thinking, how do you do that? I mean, how do you, I mean, you're at the gas station. I mean, what do you do? It's like, in excelsis Deo, in terrafax omnibus, I mean, well, how are you going to preach the gospel with your life? You ever had somebody, you're writing a check and they're going, oh my goodness, I am such a wretched sinner. God is holy and I am not. I can see this now from this check. I must, I must be saved. Nobody. Let's see how effective preaching with your life is. How many of you guys came to Jesus Christ with ne never having heard the gospel? Anyone? Without he hearing the gospel, God just struck you. One out of 400. Doesn't work very well, does it? Barnes says that less than 2% of the church shares their faith. That is not radical Christianity. In fact, I'm going to say that's not Christianity at all. Jesus gave us a command, did he not? Go and make disciples. He didn't say, you know what, if it doesn't bother you too much, if you think you could get around to it, you want to like tell somebody that I love them and that they need to be saved? No, he said, go and make disciples. It was a command. So if you don't mind... Um, Dan, you help me move this real quick. I want to show you guys. Some of this, it'll be a review. Sorry, I'm just running out of time. Okay. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. It's crooked. There we go. Okay. I hope you got pencil or paper, because here's the deal. It's inexcusable that we do not know how to present the gospel. So I'm going to just show you something. It's not going to be new for some of you, especially if you've been exposed to navigators or a lot of different things, but I'm going to show you just a way that you can just present the gospel really quick, all right, on the back of a napkin. And it goes like this. You say, in the beginning, God, and you just write up on the napkin, God, just the word God. So in the beginning, God, it says that he created us, man, and just draw a little man in his own image. Now, that doesn't mean that 
God has two legs and two arms. It, it means that he created us in a way that we could relate to him. The animals don't have to repent. The animals don't have any concept of having relationship with God. He made us above the animals with a moral conscience and with the ability to make choices so that we might have a relationship with him. But there's a problem, and this is the problem. And you draw a little kind of chasm here. And the, and the problem here is our sin. For the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It says in Isaiah um, 53.6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. You see, we have all sinned. And so they might say, well, you know, so what if everybody's sinned? It's not a big deal. Well, then you can write the word death over here. I usually write the word death. Well, there is a problem. And that's because God has said in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans, sorry, Romans 6.23, the wages of of sin is death. And in Hebrews 9.27, it says, and it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. This is Romans 3.23 over here. And Isaiah 53.6. And see, the thing is, is, we all know this. We already know this. The Lord has written it on our hearts. We know we've been separated from God, and we know we want to get back to him. So people try to start making bridges they get religious, they do good things, they give money to Jerry's kids. We try to do stuff to try to get ourselves back over this chasm. But it's very obvious that the Bible has taught us that salvation is not by works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that out of yourself. It is not as a result of your works, so that no one should boast. And Titus 3, 5 says that he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So right now it's a pretty sad story. God created us to have a relationship with him, but our sin separates us from God. It's going to lead unto our eternal death and damnation, and we can't fix it. But God did. And that's when you draw a cross here. You don't have to be a great artist. Just draw a cross, right? It's a cross. God made the bridge, didn't he? says Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Paul even says, I give it to you to what's most important, which I've received, that Christ died for us, died for our sins, just as the scripture said. And then you might point out at this point, it's like, there's still a problem with this picture. Because we're over here and God's over there. Just because he's made a way doesn't mean we've crossed it. The Bible's clear we have to receive Christ. And you draw this kind of arrow, must receive Christ. And the scriptures there are Romans 10, 9, and 10. Actually, um, John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, to them, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And Romans 10, 9, and 10 gets more specific. It says that, with, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We have to receive him. And if we'll receive him, he'll give us assurance. 1 John 5, 13 says this. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. God's been very specific. Here's the gospel, and then when you get them to this point, you say, so, Pete, Fred, Harriet, whatever their name is, where are you? 
And if they say, well, I'm over here, it's like, well, then why don't you receive Jesus and come into this relationship? Now, you might be thinking, well, I would do this, but the problem is, is that what if they say no? Well, we're not vacuum cleaner salesmen. We don't have to make the sale. We just have to speak the truth. And they may argue with you. They may say, well, what about the people in Africa who have never heard the gospel? Or, or why do bad things like cancer um, happen to good people? Or, or what about the dinosaurs? Or, or what about homosexuals? Or, I don't know. What about good homosexual dinosaurs in Africa who have never heard the gospel? It doesn't matter. Don't get sidetracked. These are not questions from an inquiring mind. These are excuses from a guilty conscience. Tell them, listen, God has all the answers because he does. He's God. But you're in no position to receive them because your sin is between you and God. He has all the answers, but how are you going to hear them when you won't even lay your sin before him? Point them back to their conscience. Point them back to God and present the gospel to them. This is important. This is how people get saved. Now, you might be saying, man, there's a whole lot there, and I don't think I could remember all of that. Well, then remember that God made you to have a relationship with him, but you blew it, and you can't fix it, so he did, and so if you'll receive it, you can know him now and forever. But honestly, I think you could do this. You just have to like, give up some other stupid thing in your life that's not nearly as important, like give up the NFL for a season. Yeah. You know, the NFL will live without you, and you'll live without the NFL. And I guarantee you, if you give up football, which we're all going to forget about in the next year anyway, you'd get this down, and you'd probably have several people ushered into the kingdom of God. Or give up next season's 24 or CSI or whatever you watch. Why are we wasting? We are the church. We're the ones who are supposed to be the most radical people on the planet. And we're so distracted that we don't even do the very essence and the very basics of Christianity. We serve a radical God. And guys, radical Christians are just Christians. All Christians are worshipers who pray radically because they're broken and because they're humble and because they're saved. All Christians are disciples who know their Bibles and live their Bibles. All Christians are ministers who give everything they have for the kingdom of God. And all Christians, true Christians, evangelize. They're evangelists. And they share a radical gospel about a radical God with a lost world. There's only one kind of Christianity, and it's radical. So, men, I think it's time we get radical. Father, we ask that you would just move upon our hearts. Father, forgive us for being so far below all you've instructed us to be. Lord, forgive us for being distracted by such temporary things when you have called us to such an eternal kingdom. Dear Lord God, forgive us for being so self-centered when Jesus, you poured out everything for us. I pray, Lord, right now that your spirit would move in each and every one of us, that you would change us to something that we might have originally thought was fanatical, but honestly, it's just loving you. I pray that everyone in this room, that we would all be filled with your spirit and that we would live radically for you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.